And this morning, we're gonna continue on in our series of the Gospel of John. So we're gonna pick up here in John chapter seven. And this morning, I wanna talk about Jesus. Simple, right? We're gonna talk about Jesus. Is that okay? Actually, if it's not okay, I'm still gonna do it anyways. It sounds simple when we say that about Jesus, that the discussion is, but, it, but really it's more complex than that. There's a certain question you need to ask when I say who is Jesus or we talk about Jesus. And the question is, which Jesus are you talking about? There's a lot of ideas and understanding about Jesus, a lot of variations about Jesus. So what Jesus are we talking about? Do you understand that Muslims believe in Jesus? In fact, Jesus is written about in the Quran. He's called Isa, and Muslims consider Jesus Christ to be one of the greatest prophets God ever sent to mankind. Do you know that Jews, not the ethnic Jews, but those who have given themselves to the religion of Judaism, they believe in a historical Jesus also. They see him as one of many false messianic claims, the most damaging of those messianic claims because of his influence and, and what he garnered in his time on earth. Hindus, Hindus believe in Jesus. Some Hindus regard Jesus as the incarnation of God, Vishnu. According to Hindu belief, Vishnu is periodically incarnated into the world as forms like a fish or a dwarf or sometimes a human being. Atheists, agnostics, they believe in historical Jesus. And for them, he was a good teacher, a moral teacher, maybe a life that you would emulate. Unbelievers, those who don't believe in Jesus in any real religious way, would see Jesus as a historical person, a lot like we think of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. But no one, no one you really want to emulate, just a guy to think back, oh yeah, he did some things. And then there are nominal Christians. What I mean by that is they're cultural Christians. You guys know what cultural Christians are, right? You know, you're born in America, so you attend church on Easter and Christmas. So I'm a Christian. You know, it's funny, when we went to Sweden, I've, think, I've said this before, we would, we would have Christians that we'd meet and they'd say they would call themselves Lutheran atheists. I thought, that's really interesting. But to them, they were cultural. You know, they were born in the Lutheran church. So therefore, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in God. Kind of goes against these nominal Christians here in America, cultural Christians. And, and for them, they see Jesus as something they just add on to life. It's something they, they just... You know, it's like a smorgasbord, so I'll get everything, and, and I'll put Jesus on there, too. You know, there's many uh, nominal Christians that believe Jesus is like a genie in a bottle who grants all of their wishes. He demands nothing from us. If we're really honest, Jesus, for the nominal Christian, is, is kind of like an errand boy. You know, when you ring the little bell, he brings pillowcases and mochaccinos. You know, things that you really need when you're suffering, maybe. These are just some of the ideas that you you come about when you ask the question of who Jesus is and how would you define him? Well, this morning we're gonna talk about Jesus, but we're gonna talk about it from regards of John chapter seven. Last week, as Pastor Johnny began, he started John chapter seven, the first 13 verses, and he staged the teaching here of Jesus before the Jewish leaders. I see John seven, John seven broken up into three sections. The first section is what Johnny covered last week, verses one through 13. And in the beginning of the John 7, it starts six months following John 6. And remember, now, John, as he's writing this gospel, is, is rapid. He's going through here very quickly of Jesus' life. And where Jesus begins in John 7 is, is the time of the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And in John's gospel, there are three feasts that are mentioned. The Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, which happened in the fall. There's the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is the Passover, which happened in March and April. And the third one is mentioned is the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, which happened usually around late May. If you want to read more about that and study it, I would suggest you look at Leviticus 23. It explains all the feasts, not, not just the three here, but the, even all of them that are listed out there. Great study to, to spend time this week to look over. What we have here in John 7 is the Feast of Booths, which is the time of remembrance when Israel dwelled in the wilderness in tents. It lasted eight days, this feast did. And the feast brought into the memories what the Lord did for them in the wilderness by providing shelter and sustenance for them. They would recite during the Feast of Booths Psalm 118, verse 25 and following, which says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And they would recite this and go in remembrance. It was a time of worship during the Feast of Booths. They would look back at the faithfulness of their God and then look ahead to the coming Redeemer, the Rescuer, that would come for them. Each booth that was set up was a silent witness to the provision of God, a foreshadowing of the coming Christ. And we see that, we understand that when we come to John's gospel, that all that was promised has come. John 1:14, as, as he writes, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So we have these sections here. The first one, 1 through 13, talk about the Feast of Booths. The second section of John 7 is what we're gonna cover this morning, verses 14 through 36. And then the last section, Lord willing, we'll cover next week, verses 37 through 52. So John, as he begins this chapter, walks through the festival week. There's a number of things to notice along the way. There's a number of things that we won't necessarily cover. And that's your job as you study during the week, to read through, to understand, to ask questions of the text. As you see, as Johnny mentioned last week, you begin John 7 and it gets to verse 5 and you see the response of the brothers. Do you remember what Johnny mentioned last week? They, they didn't even believe. All the time they spent with him and they still don't believe. They're there for his success. They want to boost up their brother. But in the middle of the week, verse 14, middle of the, the festival, Jesus goes to the temple as we begin our passage. He doesn't make himself known in the feast, but goes up to the temple to teach. And this is where the section begins. There's three questions I want to answer this morning, at least try to answer. Okay, I'll do my best as I look at text. The first question to ask is, who is Jesus? We're going to ask this question a lot. We've already done it as we've gone through John's gospel, but it's a very important question. Who is Jesus? And what does the text here this morning say? The second question is, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? The third one is, what's the response of the people and what's our response? You know, who is this Jesus? Is he a is he a prophet? Is he just a good guy? Is he just a moral teacher? Is he a demon-possessed guy? Is even the, the question comes in our passage this morning? Or is he truly the son of God? And why did he come? Is he just here to cause trouble? Is he just here to make my life difficult? Is he there to, to talk about himself? What, what is the reason that Jesus came? Is it to come and bring salvation for all those who would believe? And then what's the response of the people? You see a varied response. People are fearful, people that believe, people that want to arrest him and kill him. 
And you don't go very far into the gospel to realize that Jesus, when he comes to earth and when he begins to teach, he causes division among the Jewish people. They're following sinful leaders, sinful leaders that were burdening them with unfounded, non-biblical mandates, and Jesus came to free them. So these are the questions I wanna explore this morning as we look at scripture. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to John chapter seven, either a real Bible or your digital version, that's okay. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the foyer. We'd love to make sure you have a version for yourself, your own copy. But John chapter seven, we're gonna look at verses 14 through 36. So follow with me as I read. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Mo Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I, have come, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me? And where am I, where am I you cannot come? This is the word of God. Would you join me in prayer before we dive into the text this morning? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to open up your word. We ask, God, I ask that you would speak this morning, that you would speak through me, that you would be the teacher here, that you'd bring clarity and understanding as we look at your word, as we look at these, these questions of who Jesus is and why he came. May we know and understand this. We understand who Jesus is even more clearly this morning. Father, give us clarity, 
bring conviction. I pray that you bring change to our hearts and our lives as we hear your word preached. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So my first question this morning is, who is this Jesus? Who is Jesus? As I said earlier in the beginning, there's many questions, there's many statements, many ideas about Jesus is. If you were to walk into downtown Seattle and begin asking people who Jesus is, I'm sure you'd get some interesting responses. You should probably do that just for kicks. Wondering what people think. You know, as I said earlier, the, the Muslims, they, they believe in Jesus. They would think he's a good guy. Hindus, Buddhists, same thing. Most of them have never read the Gospel of John, I'm sure. Because if they believe that and understand what Jesus says about himself, they would have questions. They would have a problem, as we'll see. And so Jesus comes in this passage and he comes to the temple and the people are listening. They have the same type of questions. Who is this guy? You know, the question actually is, 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 is surrounded by his teaching. In verse 15, the Jews, he says, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? And, and I want to pause. I, I, I sometimes get in awe of just the simple things, but I, as I heard this, I thought, can you imagine what it had been like to sit before Jesus and have him preach? He's a much better preacher than me, I'm sure. And I look forward to that day, to be able to hear and, and interact. And, and I, I kind of welling up of just like in awe of realizing that Jesus actually lived on earth and he preached and with authority and, and looking forward to that day. But then my heart went to the other direction of those that even in this moment and at the, temp, and at the, uh, the temple listening to Jesus and then rejected him. They rejected Christ, and I begin to think those memories that are flooding their minds now for all of eternity in hell. They heard the truth, they saw the truth, and they rejected the truth. They were inches away from God in the flesh, and they turned away. They saw truth embodied and refused to believe. Now, Jesus is a teacher. We ask that question of who he is. He's a teacher. We've seen this for many chapters already in John's gospel. He loved to teach. And he definitely wowed the crowd here, as John says. The Jews marveled. They were struck with wonder. Jesus is a good teacher. He's engaging. He was thought-provoking. He was most definitely divisive to their understanding of who he was and what was going to happen. And what I mean by that is that he caused them to pause and consider what they knew and what they didn't know. He caused division in their soul because they had to deal with Jesus. For most of the Jewish listeners, they would only expect a teacher to have gone through the rabbinical school, and Jesus didn't. They know that. So how could Jesus have such a handle on the scriptures? How could he teach with such authority? When they looked at Jesus, they saw him as just a, a mere son of a carpenter. He didn't have a diploma hanging on the wall. He had no rabbinic letters of recommendation to show them. He had no earthly credentials, and they were astonished and bewildered with what they were hearing and seeing. And Jesus gives them an answer to, to where he learned this and why he knows this and where his authority comes. In verse 16 and following, Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. 
But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there's no falsehood. Jesus is saying, I was discipled by God. I've come from God. I've come from heaven. That's where his teaching has come. It's come directly from the Father. And authority is another big issue for them. Where did he get, where did this guy get the idea that he has the authority to teach God's word? Well, that came from God too. You know, it's, it's bad enough for the Jewish leaders as they, they observe this and see this, that the crowds then begin to circle around Jesus and, and gawk, and they're, they're interested in what he's saying, but Jesus pours more salt in the wound. He lays out an indictment of the leaders. He says this at the end of the, the verse that I just read. He says, the one who prides himself on being his own man, on speaking his own, has his ego bound up with his words. And so he's, he's only speaking to gain worldly honor that will fade. I remind myself of this every week when I step into this pulpit. J.C. Ryle said, a self-exalting spirit in ministers of religion is entirely opposed to the mind of Christ. This isn't my pulpit. This isn't my word. This is God's word. And so the one that deserves glory for this is not me. It's God. I'm preaching his word. As a pastor, I don't stand to preach out of the desire for praise and approval. I once heard a story of Charles Spurgeon. A woman once came to Charles Spurgeon after a service and she said to him, you are the finest preacher there ever was. I'm sure you heard that a lot. And Spurgeon replied to her and said, I know that, madam, because Satan whispered it in my ear as soon as I stepped out of the pulpit. He struggled with it as a human response. And, and, and I, I need to tell you, as a pastor, I'm flattered to hear compliments after a sermon, but my desire, my response is to give God glory in that, is not to, to receive that praise to myself. Do you want to know what a preacher wants to hear after a sermon? Do you want to know? No, I'm actually asking. Do you guys want to know? Or? Okay. Nothing thrills my heart more as a, as a pastor, as a shepherd, than hearing what the Lord has taught you, what the Lord is doing in that. Not, not the words that I said or even how I delivered them, but what God is doing through his word. You know, nothing thrills my heart more to, to hear people say, I've, I've been convicted, I've been challenged. Because the desire should be as we come in to hear God's word is to go away different than when we came in. That should be our response as listeners. And I usually ask my wife every week, I ask her one direct question usually after every service that she's here and, and able to, to listen. And, and I know because she loves me and because she loves this church and she because, because she has the same desires as I do for ministry. I know she'll answer honestly, but I ask her this question. I ask, was I clear with God's word? And the reason why I ask that question is I don't ever want to be in the way for you to understand what God's word says. I don't want to ever be a cog in that process that you look to me as truth. I want you to see God as a dispense of truth, that it's his word. And I don't want to stand in the way. I want God to receive the glory on Sunday mornings when his word is preached. It's for his glory we preach and we teach in this church. And it was the same for Jesus. He didn't seek the accolades of the crowds. He wasn't looking for boosting of his pride. 
He wasn't there to seek glory for himself, but to fulfill the ministry that the Father had given him. Jesus wasn't just a normal man. He was, he was coming from God and he was God. He healed people, as we saw in John 5, which Jesus, again, mentions here in verse 21 and 23 in the response to the Jewish leaders. If you remember in John 5, the leaders got really angry with Jesus for healing the man by the, 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 the pool of Bethsaida in John 5. For them, they were angry that he would do this on the Sabbath. It was unlawful. But as Jesus teaches the leaders here in verse 22 and 23, he, he explains it. He says, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man, a man's whole body well? And Jesus is not teaching here that he was breaking the law, but that by their own reasoning, their own understanding of the Jewish law, to circumcise a man on the Sabbath became a priority. It fulfilled what the law and the Sabbath was there for. And among the, the Jews, if two laws conflicted, it was necessary to decide which law had priority. And Jesus knows this and brings it to their minds to show that their anger was unfounded. And then he ends the discussion by teaching them. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We're to use discernment about Jesus' truth claims. Jesus was urging his hearers to abandon their misconceptions regarding him and judge his claims with righteous judgment. And when we do that, those that do that will find him to be exactly who he claimed to be, just as he promised that they would understand. You know, it's, it's critical for us to understand that when we, we come to learn about Jesus, come to ask the question about Jesus, we need to understand that he's a problem for us. What he says is a problem for us as humans. None of us come to Jesus as a blank page just waiting to be taught. We come with ideas and presuppositions about God, about salvation, about the Bible, about Jesus. And if you're honest with yourself this morning, you come with doubts too. And that's okay, but we look at Scripture and the facts of what Scripture say to teach us and to bring understanding of who Jesus is. And when you come to Jesus in the Gospels, you come and you read all the declarations that he makes about himself. They're, they're astonishing, really, about what Jesus says. They're shocking and they're hard. They're, they're audacious of what Jesus says about himself. When, when Jesus stood before them, he looked and he talked like any other Galilean man. His, his deity, his godness was invisible to them, but his humanity was very much visible. He was a normal man on the outside and people approached him as such. But normal men don't make the declarations that Jesus made. Jesus said, he declared that he had come down from heaven and that he always existed. He declared that he had been sent from the Father above. He declared that he was going to be the Savior of the world, the only exclusive Savior. He declared that only those that the Father draws are the ones that will experience eternal life. He declared that he alone is the source of eternal life and that it was only through him that you could know God. He declared that he had all rights to be worshiped and that he stood on equal footings with God. He declared that he and God were one. They were perfect in unity. He declared that he had the power to give life, and he had the power to raise those from death. He declared again and again that the Old Testament prophecies pointed to himself as the coming Savior, the rescuer that had come to save them from their sins. 
He declared that he was the judge and one day would judge all. He declared that he was without sin. He declared that he had all authority. He declared that he could forgive sins, that he had the power and authority to do it. He declared that he had rule and sovereignty over the Sabbath. He declared that he was the bread from heaven, the water for life, the door, the shepherd, the vine. He declared that he is the light of the world. He declared that it was only through him that we can receive life and resurrection. That he was the one sent by God to redeem his people, to buy back his bride, that he was the Messiah. These declarations were made from a man who who physically ate food in front of them, who walked with the same sandals, the same paths, who grew tired and needed sleep, and by all appearances to them was indistinguishable from any other man. And so when it says that people were marveling at him, they were marveling at him. They were blown away by Jesus because they quickly realized this is no ordinary man. And what do I do with him now? Who is this Jesus for you? C.S. Lewis' famous quote from Mere Christianity, I think, is applicable here. This is what he writes. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You cannot shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any other patronizing nonsense about us just being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. There are three options, Lewis says, for us. When we read all of who Jesus is and what he declared about himself, either Jesus is a liar, he's just made up this stuff, or he's a lunatic, he's a madman, a crazy man, someone not to be trusted, or Jesus is Lord, and he's sovereign, and he deserves our worship. He deserves our our lives and submission to him. Not just walking the aisle for salvation, but actually submitting all of our life to him. So who do you say Jesus is? You can't escape from this question. You can't save it for later. You have to answer it. You know, listen, if we're wrong about Jesus, then all we've wasted is years on earth. But if you're wrong about Jesus... You've wasted eternity. Charles Spurgeon once said, you may think you can live fine without Christ, but you cannot afford to die without him. You can stand very securely at present, but death will shake your confidence. Your tree may be fair now, but when the wind comes, if it has no roots in the rock of ages, down it must come. You may think your worldly pleasures good, but they will turn Bitter as wormwood in your taste, worse than gall shall be sweetest of your drinks when you shall come to the bottom of your poisoned bowl. Spurgeon had a way with words. 
He didn't pull any punches either. So if you're here this morning and think you're safe for now, it's a lie. If your life is not found in Christ, you're not safe. Believe in Christ. That is the point of John's gospel, right? It's right up here in the slide. Do you see it? John 20, 31. It's all written. It's all there so that we would believe in him. Jesus alone can free you from the power and penalty of sin. He alone can transform you and restore you to fellowship with God. Trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. So we've asked who this Jesus is. Next question I want to ask is, why did Jesus come? This question is of great consequences if you're really to understand who Jesus is. Now, folks, Jesus didn't come to earth because he was bored in heaven. Okay? That's not how it worked. He was very much enjoying the fellowship in heaven. He didn't, he didn't come to earth because he had personal dreams and agenda. He came to glorify the Father. He came to earth to point people to God. He came to teach unpleasant things to our human hearts. And he's very clear on human sinfulness, on human depravity. John's gospel is clear on this. John chapter three lays it out that every single one of us has a problem with sin. And we cannot deal with it on our own. John three, verse 19, Jesus says, and this is the judgment, the light, Jesus, has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Folks, the world hates Jesus. That will not change till Jesus comes back. And you look at verse seven that Johnny covered last week. And Jesus responding to his brothers, he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus is making a distinction in this verse between him and his brothers. The, the world doesn't hate the brothers because they're part of the world. But Jesus says, yeah, the world hates me. Why? Because I've come to testify, to, to preach that their works are evil. His mission was to come and to preach the gospel to a dying world. And Jesus is saying, you cannot love your sins and at the same time love your Savior. It isn't possible. You either love one and hate the other. So Jesus has come. He's come to earth. In verse 28, Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. He's laying waste to all that they think they understand. He says, you do not understand. You do not know God. They need to hear this truth. People need to hear this truth. And people in our world confuse being nice with being good. You can be very nice and be very bad. 
Jesus came to be truly good, and he, he came to tell us the truth about ourselves. Jesus also came with a plan and a purpose. He has a purpose in all that he does. You know, early in this chapter, Jesus doesn't go up to the Feast of Booths because it wasn't his time. It wasn't the right opportunity for him to make his entrance. It's, it's not his time to set up his kingdom on earth. That's what everyone wanted, but it wasn't his time. This is what the brothers wanted. Jesus, they're, they're saying to him, if you really are gonna make a go of this religious thing, this, this, this thing that you're saying, you better go now. Make yourself known. Get, get the ball rolling, Jesus. And think about the brazen request of the brothers. I mean, if they understand fully what's going on, look at uh, verse one in chapter seven. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee and he would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So what a brazen request from the brothers. Yeah, they're seeking to kill you, but go ahead anyways. That's what brothers are for, right? Did you have a brother like that? I had a brother like that. Go ahead, Jeff. It's just Tabasco sauce. It's not really hot. Take a drink. You know, I, in our backyard when I was growing up, we had these clotheslines. They were big iron metal duads that were 10 feet apart. You know, do you have those out anymore? I don't know. We have dryers everywhere now, but huge things, you know? And I was nine years old. My brother was like, just climb up there. Hold on to it. Hold on tight. I'm going to just try to swing you you know, flip you around. Man, boys are idiots, I tell you. They're just dumb. But that's what brothers do. Yeah, trust me. Trust me. I, I went 10 inches and fell right down on my back. They try to talk you into doing things. And his brothers here are trying to do this with Jesus. They're trying to talk him into this. Yeah, you're going to make a go of this. You, go now. Go make yourself known. Jesus doesn't listen to his brothers. Jesus doesn't go to the feast. Jesus doesn't go to be praised and glorified because Jesus came to die. He didn't come at this moment to reign. That will come later. Jesus came to earth to die. And in his refusal to go, Jesus is saying, Jesus is preaching to his brothers, there is no crown before the cross. There is no crown before the cross. And his plans will not be thwarted. It will not be changed. Jesus and God's plans will happen. Even when those leaders try to arrest him in verse 33, they, the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. In verse 33, Jesus then said to them, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. But just think of the power in that. We're here to get you. Yeah, no, I'm gonna be here a little longer. That doesn't work in our world of please come to get you. You're going. But with Jesus, they leave. And the feast of the booths was in the fall. It would be, it would be Jesus' last fall on earth. The Passover would come in the spring. And that Passover would bring his death. So when Jesus says, my time is short. He means it. It's around six months later. He knows he's going to die. I find it ironic when we read in verse one, you know, they're, they're looking for Jesus. They're, they're waiting to get Jesus. They're waiting to, to arrest Jesus so that they can kill him. And Jesus is saying, I'm waiting to die. It's, it's, not, it's not the time for this. I will die, but only on God's timetable. 
It's ironic, I think. There'd be a specific day and a specific time that Jesus would die this cruel death. And he says, it's not today. Each day for Jesus was weighed. Each moment was, was planned. Jesus wouldn't waste one moment on anything that would delay or hinder God's plans. Not one day would be randomly spent with Jesus. You know, it made me start thinking about this and wrestling with this in my own life and thinking more about this. How am I spending my days on earth? We have such a short time. I know kids that are sitting here, you're thinking, no, it feels forever. In fact, Jeff, you've been preaching for like two hours, right? It's just time goes so slow for kids. I, I remember that. I remember being there. But life on earth is so short. How am I using each minute, each hour, each day? Is it for Jeff's glory or for God's glory? You know, wasting time may not seem like a big deal to some of you, except for the fact that our time really isn't ours. It's God's. He gave it to us. It's a limited resource, folks. The richest person in the world cannot buy more time. The reality is there's a clock ticking, there's time fleeing. And each day brings us closer to the day that we'll meet Jesus. Seconds add into minutes, minutes add into hours and days, and they're ticking off in our life. And before we know it, we'll be staring death in the eyes. Just talking this morning right after the first service with a couple that's been a part of our church for about six months, just found out two days ago she has cancer. Very advanced form. Saying, we don't know how long you have. She's in tears after the service saying, I, I get it. Fearful. Life is just a vapor, folks. And Jesus perfectly spent his days living for the glory of God so that us, by faith, can live for God's glory. Jesus righteously lived every second of his life to redeem our time. And this must be at the forefront of our minds. You know, I read biographies. I read about Charles Spurgeon. I quote from him a lot. I appreciate his ministry, but he died in his 50s. And to look back of what God allowed him to do in 50 years it's amazing in that short amount of time. And I say, Lord, what do you have for me? I don't want to lose sight of the truth that time is fleeting. That I only have so many years on this earth. And that I have a purpose here to live for God's glory. And folks, it's the same for all of you. And if you lose sight of this truth, you'll either live in guilt or self-righteousness. Guilt because you can't measure up or self-righteousness because you're going to try to do a bunch of stuff for Jesus. So yes, strive for righteous living, but know that Jesus already accomplished that task for you. He already died for you. We have his righteousness. When we sing about my righteousness, it's because of Christ. It's accounted to us. It's our righteousness because of him. So your time is already redeemed. Now go and serve him. Serve him for 
his glory and not our own. You know, can I challenge you to make a practice every week? When the week ends, you can even do this daily if you want, but when the week ends, ask penetrating questions yourself. How did I use the time that God gave me this week? How much of it was spent on my own pursuits, on my own glory? And how much of it was spent on God, serving him? And you don't have to be in full-time ministry to spend time serving God. Do it where you're at. God placed you where you're at. It's not inferior. Serve God for his glory where you're at. And use your time well. Use it for his honor, for his glory. So we've asked who Jesus is and we've asked why he came. And last, what is the response of the people? And I wanna bring this to a close. The response of the people was divided. There were many at the beginning of the section that were amazed at his ability to handle scriptures, to teach with authority. They were astonished and wondered how he came to know so much. But later when, the, when Jesus informs the crowds of the Jewish leaders and their plans to seek to kill him, they were unaware of their plans. And the response to Jesus is he must be mad or he has a, a demon, they say. They think he's not right in his mind. And yet there are still others that believed. But the loudest of responses that we see here were those that sought to arrest Jesus so that they might kill him. There's a division that's evident throughout it. You know, John began chapter seven with a somber note that Jesus went about in Galilee and he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And so right from the outset, we realize that the seriousness of what is happening at this point in Jesus' ministry. And then it moves on to, to record the dialogue with Jesus and his unbelieving brothers. And during that interaction, Jesus says, the world, yes, the world hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. And the chapter goes even further to discuss the controversy around Jesus, which resulted in even more deeper divides with the people. So whether it was from the, the Jewish leaders or the crowds that surrounded Jesus and talked about him or the, the Lord's own brothers, Jesus faced hostility. And it was for one simple reason. One reason that all this hostility is here. It was unbelief. Unbelief. The world hates Jesus and the world hates his message. So what do you do with this section of scripture that we covered? How do you respond? I read of an account this week of a European diplomat who had known Adolf Hitler personally. This man wasn't German, but he was from another Eastern European country, but he in fact had seen and known Hitler. And this is what he says about it, quote, the weird thing about Hitler was if I was blindfolded and taken to a room, I could tell you whether he was there, whether he was speaking or not. It was an electricity that sparked from him. All great leaders are like that. There's a domination about them. If you were in German politics and Hitler came on the scene, there were only three things you could do. You could retire or flee from the country. You could sell yourself to him, body and soul, or you could assassinate him. Those were the only three things you could do. You don't compromise. You can't deal with him. You can't partner with him. You're either all for him, you're all against him, or you're all away from him. It's amazing to hear that about a leader, an evil leader, but a leader nonetheless. 
And when he, this man as he come, says he comes in the presence of somebody like this with this kind of power and pull, you have three responses, he says, three things you can do. And how much more true is it that of Jesus Christ and understanding why he brings this divide with people? When you come into the presence of a powerful leader, it's all or nothing. But even more so when you come in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all or nothing. This is why you, when you read in the scriptures, Jesus makes such incredible statements as he does. He says, you, you have to hate your father and your mother. You have to hate your brother and your sister in response to following him. And when they ask, he says, this is the way that it is. Audacious, hard things to understand. And when Jesus talks about it, he says, I did not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword, I came to bring fire on earth. When he was born, the prophecy went, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. Fall or rising? It's all or nothing. He is a block of stone, the Bible says. You either build your whole house on him or you stub your foot on him painfully. There's no way around it, folks. You either follow him completely or dismiss him completely. He demands complete, unconditional, unremitting, and undiluted allegiance and loyalty. There's nothing else you can do. And here's the test. This is the test when I say to the average person who sits in church, who comes to church or claims to be a Christian, tell me about your life and how you relate it to Jesus Christ. And a lot of people respond with a, a moderate view. They're not scouring the Bible every day to find out what his will is for them. They're not examining their lives and chucking the things that they think are going to harm Christ or displease him and then adding things that will glorify him. They're not taking all their resources, all their time, all their money and all their talents and putting them at his disposal. They're not wrestling to push his values in every part of their lives publicly and privately. They're not wrestling in prayer every day until they just see his face because that's what they want more than anything else in their life. No. Most people have a Christ who says, just try your best. That's all I ask. I'll be there when you fall down. I know this is hard, but there is nobody like that. Anybody who is moderate in his reaction to Jesus Christ is reacting to fiction. There are only three, three things you do in response to Jesus. You, you flee, you try to assassinate, or you can sell your body and soul and serve him forever. And some Christians are playing with Jesus like a kitten when he's the Lion of Judah. Jesus says, it's all or nothing. Morality and goodness is not enough. A prophet, a great moral teacher says, there, there is the way, go, go get it. Here's a way to God. Jesus comes and says, I am God. I am the way. Prophets say, this is a possibility. 
This is a possible God, and Jesus comes and says, I am God. The prophets say there's, there's a possibility to reach him this way, and Jesus says, I've already done everything you need to reach me. The prophets, the moral teachers say, here's a, here's a possible solution, and Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Morality and goodness are not enough. God sent his son to take your punishment. He sent his son to do everything you need. And our response is to believe and to trust in him, to receive him. I once heard a story of a Christian pastor who was visiting missionaries in Mongolia. And during the trip, he sat down with this missionary, but with these Muslim teacher and a Buddhist teacher. It sounds like a joke, right? Muslim, a Buddhist, Christian. And they're discussing. He's, he's kind of listening in as this Muslim and this Buddhist are talking about their ways to get to God. And, and, and hearing them talk about their, this analogy of a mountain. As the Muslim said, yeah, you, you find this way and I go the back way. But the Buddhist is like, well, I go the front way. And they basically get to the point of the top and say, yeah, see, you went that way, I went this way, we both got to God. So the, the pastor, understanding this, reiterates what they said to, to make sure he understands. Yes, you're both climbing the mountain, you both find your way to get to God. And they understand joyfully, yes, you understand, is that the same way? And he said, well, no, let me give you a different option. What if I told you that God didn't wait on the top of the mountain for you to find your way up there? Instead, God came down from the mountain and met you at the bottom because he knew you wouldn't make it up there. And they, they re responded to him with, with joy and, and they were humbled to think that God would come down off the mountain for them. And he said, this is what Jesus did for you. Jesus came to earth to die in your place for your sins. If there is anyone who that's here that says, well, I believe any one of these faiths is a way to get to God. What you're saying is morality and goodness are enough. And what you've done is that you've ripped out the heart of Christianity. Because the heart of Christianity is to say it's not enough. Salvation is, is not by our deeds, but it's from grace alone. Salvation is only through Jesus Christ. And in faith, we receive what Jesus did on our behalf and trust in him. We trust in him. We don't trust in ourselves. We can't trust in ourselves. You can't just change your life a little bit. When Jesus comes into your life, he transforms your life. In fact, that just... This, even this morning at a coffee shop that I visit just down the street here and the owner is a believer and he was talking about his marriage and he says, I remember the day when my marriage made a turn. And I said, oh yeah, what was that? And he's like, the day I believed in Jesus Christ. He said, it transformed my life. That's what the gospel does. My challenge this morning to you is don't walk away from Jesus. Don't be like these in the temple that hear him 
that are marveled at his teaching and then turn around and leave, then join with the crowd to just arrest him, to kill him. Trust in Jesus. Believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you have brought us to this place that we could see and understand your word and the evidence here of who Jesus is. It pushes us, God. We also realize that faith is more than just looking at evidence. Faith is, is stepping out. It's trusting ourselves to it. And Father, I, I, I believe there are many of us here this morning who belong to you and we've given ourselves to you, but we forget the all or nothingness of Christ. We have forgotten. And we like to dabble in him. We like to have a little bit of him. But we struggle to give ourselves completely to him. God, I ask that you would help them to see the flaw of that situation. That you would humble us and to bring to our memories again that it's all or nothing. Father, there are some of those this morning here that are simply resisting your lordship in their lives. I pray that you would help them to come in understanding to see that it's only by submitting to you and being willing to do whatever you ask that they will know. Show them the truth of who Jesus is, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Bring them understanding. Father, I know if they bring their questions about Jesus to you, you have the answer. Pray you grant faith and repentance. Father, help us as we leave this place to further your gospel in our homes, in our communities, in our workplaces. Father, help us to redeem the time that we have left, to use it well. And I pray that for all of us even in our rest. Father, may we glorify you. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.